And hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy. And especially this week, we're going to be looking at education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And as you uh, probably recall vaguely, uh, we did have an election this week. Um, and a lot of interesting developments, uh, <laughs> to say the least, at the, uh, at the federal and at the state level. Um, Walking through it, let's start with uh, some of the results at the state level because I feel like they got a little bit overshadowed. Um, a little bit of a balance of power shift to some degree in the legislature. Yeah, this year, I guess it makes sense to start at the local level, start at the state level. That's what we do is cover the legislature um, every day. Uh, but yeah, all 105 uh, seats were up in the legislature this year, but something like 39 of them weren't even contested uh, in the general election. That's for a variety of reasons, but uh, mainly because there was no opponent on the other side of the ticket. So all 105 seats were up, but not only, Kevin, did the Republicans retain their supermajority in the Idaho legislature, they extended it by picking up four seats at the expense of Democrats. That's three seats in the House where the balance of power is now 59 to 11 in favor of the Republicans and a gain of one seat in the Senate where the balance of power uh, increased from 29 to 6 for those 35 mm -hmm. positions in the Idaho Senate. So it was a big night for Republicans all across the country and certainly across the state of Idaho, and we'll get into that. But, but what jumped out at you about what we did see in these contested legislative races and how might that affect... Uh, this legislative session that's going to begin in less than two months. Well, I think it's a little early to tell what are the direct impacts here for education policy because um, you know, none of these uh, none of these results really would seem to affect the education committees directly or even uh, really affect um, the budget committee to a great extent. Dan Schmidt, the one uh, Democratic senator who who was beaten on Tuesday, was a member of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. So you'll have uh, a change there. And, and, and Senator Schmidt had been very outspoken on the, uh, on the broadband issue and the Idaho Education Network issue. So beyond that, I, what really jumps out at me, it's not unusual for Republicans to gain ground in the legislature in a presidential election year. Uh, Republicans have historically been the beneficiary of big turnout in a presidential year, and that usually translates to uh, to victories for them. What really kind of jumps out at me about where this leaves uh, the Democratic Party in Idaho, we're talking now 17 legislators. Uh, out of 105. Out of 105 are Democrats. 12 of those 17 are in Boise. So very, very concentrated in the capital city, you have one Democratic legislator now in the Pacific time zone. That's uh, Paulette Jordan from, from Plummer. You have only a couple of uh, Democratic legislators in the Wood River Valley. So it's a very isolated, very localized uh, party at this point. And I, I wonder how that's going to affect uh, their influence uh, in the legislature. I mean, you're a minority to begin with. Does that affect uh, your, your influence? Does it affect sort of the ongoing tension that we hear year after year after year about the great state of Ada? You know, does that play into sort of uh, their role, their influence, their ability to affect public policy? And you mentioned 17 Democrats left uh, in the legislature, or 17 that will be in the legislature when it convenes 
in January. Uh, but I believe six of those 17 ran unopposed, so only 11 really won any kind of an election whatsoever in Idaho on Tuesday. And so, yeah, the, the state of the Democratic Party uh, is certainly diminished uh, here in Idaho, even from uh, the small minority role that it played before, as you pointed out. Um, do you want to move on? Do you want to talk about what we saw at the presidential level first here? Yeah, in well, why not? Yes. Um, we spent a little bit of time this week sort of looking at the numbers, but also trying to look at the policy. And you looked at the numbers as to what happened in this presidential race in Idaho, uh, what happened in terms of the results. It's not uncommon, obviously, for Republicans to uh, to win Idaho in a presidential election, you have to go back to Lyndon Johnson in 1964 for the Democrats to uh, to carry Idaho. But you were pointing out before uh, the extent of Donald Trump's victory in Idaho. Uh, this was a, a sweeping win, as you would expect, uh, in Idaho for the Republican nominee. Um, we have 44 counties in the state of Idaho. Uh, President-elect Donald Trump won 42 uh, of those counties, and most of them very handily. The only two exceptions, the only two counties uh, that voted for Hillary Clinton were Blaine County, uh, which is in Sun Valley area is part of that, and then Lataw County up north, which includes the city of Moscow. And those, the University of Idaho. And the University of Idaho. Those were the only two of Idaho's 44 counties that voted uh, for for Senator Hillary Clinton. Teton County uh, in far eastern Idaho, kind of a resort, ski resort area there, was very close within like five or six votes. That also um, went to Trump. Even Ada County, where you think of Boise, the one stronghold remaining for Democrats in the Idaho legislature, uh, Senator Clinton received less than 38% of the votes cast in Ada and was beat comfortably uh, by Donald Trump. Well, and I think it underscores something you see in Ada County politics, too, that there's kind of a red wall mm -hmm. in Ada County. Uh, Boise itself is is definitely skewing uh, blue. It's definitely skewing Democratic, as we mentioned, the, uh, the 12th uh, Democratic legislators from Boise. But you get... Uh, you get west of about oh, you know, five mile road in in Boise, and it becomes really, really strong Republican country. Uh, and you head out into those suburbs, Meridian, Eagle, Star. Uh, they are uh, very conservative, and they uh, produce some districts. of the most conservative legislators yes. uh, in the state, uh, for sure. So, so not really a surprise about what we saw at, at the macro level in terms of Idaho and in terms of Donald Trump's. Uh, victory in Idaho, but the national victory, you know, as I mentioned in the story I wrote earlier this week, it, it's really kind of taken the oxygen out of any other discussion of, uh, of politics. It's such a uh, surprising result and, and such a, a historic uh, end to a, a historic election that it feels like that's what everybody's discussing and it really kind of overshadows everything else here. It certainly does. And, and you had a chance to move. Yes, yeah, certainly it was surprising and, and shocking. It kind of flipped the narrative on its head about our traditional expectations of what it takes to run for and win the presidency. There's certainly all of that uh, to be debated and, and discussed and sussed out over the years. But to move beyond sort of the noise and, and, and all of that, you had a chance to look uh, at education policy leading up to the election uh, and had a chance to... Uh, you know, making any kind of prediction about Donald Trump uh, is dangerous, as we know. But you had a chance to look at what he has said about education and his priorities for education. How how could his presidency 
affect education based on what we know about his positions on education, Kevin? To the extent that uh, President-elect Trump has talked about public education, it really kind of comes down to two topics. It comes down to school choice, and it comes down to Common Core. With regard to school choice, uh, Trump is very in support of school choice. He would like to expand school choice. He would like to see more competition, more charters, more private education options uh, available to more students. He has talked, and it's kind of sketchy where the, how it would work, but he's talked about creating a $20 billion block grant program for states to encourage school choice programs, to encourage a voucher system. Now, bear in mind, and we've written about yeah. this, we've reported about it, a voucher system is unconstitutional in Idaho. Very strong language in the Constitution precluding a voucher system. And not a lot of momentum in the legislature even to take on that issue. That's been, even in a legislature where school choice is a popular concept, where charter schools have uh, had some success, have been able to influence uh, legislative policy. Uh, charter groups definitely have the ear of some very powerful legislators. The voucher issue has never been an issue that folks really want to to take on to any great extent. We had uh, the Blaine Amendment uh, that we saw earlier this, sesh, uh, earlier this year, which would have, in a roundabout way, uh, had an influence on the voucher debate. But even that, that was positioned yeah, as right, a way yeah. to allow state-funded scholarships to flow freely to uh, religious church-affiliated schools such as your Northwest Nazarenes, your BYU-Idaho's. That was and the way that was framed. Later in the right. process, did uh, Representative Ron Nate say, yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, it probably would affect uh, vouchers. Nobody took this on as, as a, a voucher. Way, right, as a voucher initiative. Absolutely. Whether that could change if there's momentum... After this election, after this legislative session, hard to say, but we haven't seen it yet. Right, and we didn't see a whole lot of uh, momentum with regard to taking on the the Blaine Amendment as far as uh, college scholarships went. I mean, this got scuttled, you know, by leadership in the House, and there was really no momentum right. for it to go in the Senate. And I think that's kind of why it sort of met a quiet uh, demise in the House, because uh, there was no sense in moving this thing to the Senate. I think House leadership thought, well, why even bother? It's not going anywhere. So right. Exactly. So, so what changes next year is hard to say, and whether uh, Donald Trump's uh, rhetoric about uh, school choice changes that in any way, I don't really even, know. At this point. Even Common Core, Kevin, as you've pointed out, was a state-led effort and a state decision. Idaho adopted... Uh, the Idaho core standards by the legislature and by the state board of education. This isn't the type of thing where a new president could issue an executive order or wave a magic wand and just make the core standards go away. That was a state initiative, correct? Right, and a state initiative in 40-plus states. I mean, there's a path to repealing Common Core. And, and Vice President-elect Mike Pence did knows that. Knows it well because uh, Indiana was the first state to repeal Common Core, and that happened on, under his watch. The bottom line here is I suppose there are going to be opponents of Common Core who may feel emboldened to have a president and a vice president who are on record in opposition to Common Core. But you've got to look at the politics of it in Idaho. We're now in the fourth year 
of the Common Core standards uh, being in use in the schools. You still have a lot of political support for this. Education groups came on board early. Uh, business groups have come on board. There's a lot of tailwind behind these standards right now. The widely celebrated they're, governor's they're, task they're, they're, force right. recommendations included uh, staying the course with Idaho Core Standards, Common Core right. Standards. And did that at the time where the Common Core Standards were first becoming controversial. Right. You know, there was blowback at that time. There was blowback in that whole task force process. And the task force nonetheless made the conscious decision of saying, we're going to go on record in support of these standards. And there's been no meaningful concerted attempt in the legislature to take that on. I'd be really surprised to see that change in 2017. But you know, Plus, you would have to have else? other standards to replace it. You're required to test to those standards. It's not something that, even if there was the will building, that it could happen overnight. You would have to have some sort of replacement standards and some sort of replacement test to comply with uh, state and federal education right. laws. Well, speaking even, of state of federal even education, even at the end of the day, though, I mean, you know, and there's a reason why we don't spend a whole lot of time writing about the presidential race or congressional races is because really federal education policy is is secondary to state education policy. What happens at the state house is much more of an important, uh, has much more uh, meaningful implications, much more direct implications to what's going on in the schools. So we'll see what uh, what a Trump presidency really means in terms of education, but. This week you you were out in the field and you got a sense of some of the some of the effect of what happens when federal policy is is ceded to the states and how that's working and sometimes it's not as smooth a process as uh, as you might think. So this is what we've alluded to in the last minute or two of this discussion. But the new federal Every Student Succeeds Act uh, that was signed almost a year ago, in fact, the new federal education law it replaces No Child Left Behind. It pushes much control and oversight and accountability of public schools away from the federal government and towards the state governments. And so right now, Idaho is sort of in the second half of its push to comply with this major new federal education law. Just at the beginning of this month, the State Department of Education revealed its first draft of the plan to comply with that federal education law. And that final draft is going to be due to the feds in March. And so this is quickly coming to a head right now. But from the moment this draft was released on November 1st, just hours before the first public hearing designed to solicit feedback on the plan, education groups have come out vocally and said their voices were not included in the process where this law, where this plan to comply with the law was crafted. They said their voices were shunned, and uh, they said it's kind of reminiscent of take your pick, students come first, tiered licensure, other major education initiatives that local educators felt were just pushed on them and they had to react to. So uh, on Wednesday night, I found myself out in Caldwell at a public hearing, the final public hearing, uh, to gather uh, information from the public about this plan to comply with the law. This is a two-hour meeting. The first nearly half hour of this meeting was nothing but complaints and questions from educators, from frustrated parents, from paraprofessionals, from the Treasure Valley Down Syndrome Association, from a wide group of people who said the state spent all summer and all fall developing this plan and we're only just now hearing about it 
and our voices and were not. 102 page plan on us a week ago. And you're asking us to to give you our feedback. Well, first and foremost, our feedback is we don't like the level of public involvement that you included. Uh, the teacher of the year, Melissa mm-hmm. Farrow from the Caldwell School District, was at that meeting. One of the first people to stand up. She said she had been at a meeting with other states' teachers of the year, and they kept going on and on about how involved they were in their state's plan to comply with the ESSA law. And she said she looked around the room and she was the only teacher participating uh, in many of these meetings uh, in the state of Idaho. And so uh, there was that, and, and, and certainly there was frustration. Uh, I do want to point out that the State Department of Education did point out, did put out a call in the spring and in the summer to get, they call them stakeholders, but education groups, parents, taxpayers together to provide feedback. And people did respond to that call. And the way they gathered that feedback was not through traditional meetings, but through a series of webinars and a series of emails. If you look at, you know, if you look at some of the minutes from the meeting, it talks about the extent of the meeting was sending out an email to uh, different stakeholders. And it doesn't say who was involved or what the email was. We also have minutes that reflected that certain trustees and school board members were contributing to the plan. One was Marge Chipman out of Weezer, but when we talked with Chipman, she said she was never invited to a meeting or asked for her input. So, um, And it goes beyond what you heard last night in, in, the, in the meeting in Caldwell. Yeah. I mean, we were covering the beginning of the, uh, the school board's association meeting uh, this week, and uh, discussion of this of this plan came up, and you had uh, twenty school trustees in the room. These are elected officials. Only one of the twenty said that uh, he'd had the time to read the hundred and two page plan. Well, yeah, you know, it only was out a week ago. I mean, there's there's a reason why uh, folks are feeling like they're playing catch up. So it's it's probably of little surprise that you have. Uh, teachers and trustees and stakeholders saying, hey, wait a minute, what's what's in this? And why why are we just now hearing about this plan? So it's definitely not been a model rollout here. Now, a couple things before I move on. The Council of Chief State School Officers, this national group of which Sherry Ibarra in the state of Idaho are a member, they have stressed that in order for your plan to succeed, you need robust, inclusive, diverse input from all sets of folks from all throughout the state, or you will not get that buy-in. You will not have the success with your plan. So that's an outside group of which Idaho is a member saying, listen, the best practice here is to get all the feedback and make people feel like their voices are heard. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing, State Department of Education officials were very clear uh, that they heard the comments loud and clear. They said, your comments have shown us that we can do better, and we want to prove to you that throughout the duration of this process, you will be in the loop. Your, your voices will be heard. So what they've said is, looking forward, the State Board of Education is scheduled to vote on this plan in December. That will trigger a public comment window for 30 days in January. Between now and when the plan is submitted to the, sta- to the feds in March, State officials say they will be seeking out your influence and your comment. And there are links on our webpage uh, on IdahoEdNews.org where you can comment. Uh, and so it does seem like it's a little late in the process, but they said they will include your perspective and they are interested uh, in what you have to say. We're going to continue to follow this. Right. We'll follow we'll the state board vote in December. Because in the big picture, I mean, this is a, a major shift in jurisdiction from from federal education oversight to state education oversight. So and this the issue is what, of how, did, how is it done? How is it played out? 
and how are stakeholders involved? That's an important uh, and this an is important very, piece of the equation. It's very important. This is what the state asked for. This is what the right. state wanted. Right. Get the federal government out of the way. Let us handle it. So they've gotten what they wanted. Uh, but anyways, we'll continue to cover that. There's a big meeting coming up in December. We will cover that. Uh, a couple quick thoughts before we move to wrap things up. On Friday morning, the School Trustees Association, the ISBA, met in Boise. Uh, they had their leadership elections, and they voted on a series of education policy initiatives. And uh, we'll have coverage of that Friday afternoon at IdahoEdNews.org. One of the key policy discussions is going to be Sherry Ybarra's proposed rural school center. They're set to vote on that, and the executive board from the Trustees Association has already come out against it. So we'll see where that vote lies. We'll have coverage of that on Friday afternoon of this week. I want to point out that next week uh, for our podcast, we're going to do a special Facebook Live edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. We're going to have a guest. We're going to have Assistant Professor of Politics and Government Jacqueline Kettler from Boise State University. We're going to go deep on some of the election results, and we want to take questions from our listeners and readers over social media. And So if you'd like to watch that live, it should be about 10.30 next Friday. We'll have Jackie on. Um, She gave a fascinating talk to the Idaho Press Club that we were both at right before the election. I think we can learn a lot from her, and I think it's a chance for our readers and our listeners to ask questions they have about the election, about what we saw, about maybe why the media got this so wrong, quite frankly. Uh, So that's there. Be looking forward to that next week. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I also wanted to circle back. This has been kind of a, a serious podcast, but I wanted to have a little fun here. Last week, we told our listeners about a great big adventure, Kevin, that you were having in New York. Uh, you've gotten back, mm-hmm. but you had a chance to travel with me to with your family to New York, run the New York City Marathon. Tell me a little bit about it and, and what it meant to you. Uh, it was well. I'm here, yeah. <laughs> and I I feel good. I, I'm you know it, it was an amazing experience. The, the whole trip was was a lot of fun. The marathon itself. Um, Lived up to everything I hoped it would be. It was just a huge event. Uh, you have 50,000 runners. You, you have a million spectators. Um, I almost always run with my iPod because I love music and I kind of like to zone out. But by the end of it, I took the thing off because I, I wanted to hear the, the crowds and the bands and the, the whole support from, from the spectators. It was an amazing, an amazing experience. And... Uh, you know, it's fun to get out and do this, and I have my, my medal hanging on the wall as, uh, as living proof that, uh, that I finished. Uh, I did beat uh, Sean Astin, so I did beat Rudy. Rudy. Yeah, so Rudy. I got that. It was not, um, did not beat Tiki Barber, the New York Giants uh, all-time <laughs> leading rusher, didn't expect to. I mean, after all, but it was, it was so much fun. And uh, just, just a really global experience because you had runners from, from all over the world uh in our hotel we had probably about 50 runners from italy and they were you know you've got a chance to talk to them a little bit you know at breakfast and just listen to them at breakfast just the excitement of the event it was it was a once in a lifetime so i'm so happy for you and and you're from new york you grew up there you had a Mm -hmm. chance to bring your family bring your boys back there and and participate in in some of the sightseeing some of the tourism Kind of things when you were getting ready for the run, right? Right. We had some time to do uh, do some things like go to the uh, the Statue of Liberty, which I'd never done as a kid. I'm ashamed to kind of admit Ellis Island, which was really moving, uh, really uh, thoughtful uh, displays on our our history as a nation of immigrants. 
um, and just a lot of sightseeing, a lot of uh, a lot of dining out, and just you know, just a chance to kind of take in the whole atmosphere. So it was a great week. It was really special. I, I had a chance to see some of your photos with your family sightseeing, some of the photos of you running and, and noticing your family and, and waving to them. Yeah. I know you had some Idaho love. You had an Idaho hat on. I was wearing an Idaho hat. And I had a couple people say, hey, Idaho, way to go. So Absolutely. So, you know, it was really a great day. Well, I'm so proud of you, Kevin. It was an epic challenge, and, and you did it. And uh, my hat is off to you. And, and so congratulations. I'm proud of Thanks. you. And uh, I'm excited, obviously, to work with you every day. Uh, but this was such a cool thing, and I was happy to live vicariously through you and, and see your photos. Uh, but I think that covers all the news um, for this week. I do want to extend a special invitation to join us next Friday for our special uh, live podcast looking at the election results and digging deeper with our guest from Boise State. Yeah. Please send us a lot us. of good insights on campaign finance and, and kind of the bigger picture of politics as well. So we will be back next Friday. In the meantime, thanks as always uh, for listening. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. Bye.